WBAI Evening News coming up in this hour, followed by a counterspin um, at 6.30, 7 p.m. will be an extended uh, version of Building Bridges with Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg. And I think during between that time, I, I guess we'll do the clapping session again. You know, that thing that we've been doing for like, I don't know, close to three months now, two and a half months at least, you know, honoring those people that are avid, uh, that were, uh, that are, uh, essential workers. Um, uh, why should we can, why not continue that? Okay. So, uh, something that we do here to respect the community of our community, because we are then, and they, they are, we, and they are us, you know, that whole thing. Okay, so let's get on with the show. Stay tuned for WBAI's Evening News, presented by The Independent, coming up. Good evening in news tonight. Thousands pay their final respects to George Floyd in advance of his funeral tomorrow in his hometown of Houston, Texas. Mayor de Blasio has announced he supports cutting the NYPD's budget, but won't say how much. The statue of a notorious slave trader got the send-off it deserved yesterday. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, and this is the WBAI Evening News for Monday, June 8, 2020. George Floyd's body has returned to his hometown of Houston. Earlier today, thousands of mourners traveled to the Fountain of Praise Church to view his casket. Big Floyd, as he was known to his friends, grew up in Houston's third ward, was a star athlete at Jack Yates High School, and continued to be a popular figure in the neighborhood. He moved to Minneapolis five years ago to start a new chapter in his life. His funeral will be held tomorrow, and his body will be laid to rest in Pearland, Texas, just east of Houston. You can listen to special live coverage from Houston of George Floyd's funeral starting at 1 p.m. tomorrow. You can listen to special live coverage from Houston of George Floyd's funeral starting at 1 p.m. tomorrow right here at 99.5 FM. The nationwide protest movement that erupted following the May 25th police killing of George Floyd continued to grow over the weekend with rallies and marches in major cities as well as in smaller towns like Marion, Indiana and Vidor, Texas. Here in New York, marchers continued to defy Mayor de Blasio's 8 p.m. curfew despite repeatedly being attacked by the police. Yesterday, the mayor gave up and rescinded his curfew one day early. Protesters celebrated by freely marching late into the night. On Sunday, Mayor de Blasio also finally bowed to protester demands and announced he would support cutting the NYPD's budget and using those funds for other services. We will be moving funding from the NYPD to youth initiatives and social services. The details will be worked out in the budget process in the weeks ahead. But I want people to understand that we are committed to shifting resources uh, to ensure that the focus is on our young people. And I also will affirm, while doing that, we will only do it in a way that we are certain continues to ensure that this city will be safe. While de Blasio has refused to say how much he wants to cut the NYPD's budget, protesters are demanding $1.1 billion in cuts to the police department. Yesterday, hundreds of marchers stopped by the Williamsburg residence, where City Council Speaker Corey Johnson frequently stays, to make their demands known as city budget negotiations get underway.
In Minneapolis, a majority of the city council announced Sunday that it would move to disband the city's police department and replace it with a holistic series of programs to ensure public safety for all of the city's residents. The city's mayor, Jacob Fry, does not support the move. Robert Ganji, director of the New York City-based Police Reform Organizing Project, says the rupture in Minneapolis is a long time coming. Minneapolis has tried all the more modest modifications, the tweaks around the edges that many mainstream politicians and pundits have advised over the last several years. The previous reforms have not worked. So I think that is a uh, significant prelude to the very real possibility that the, uh, the, the politicians and policymakers in Minneapolis will take more f- fundamental steps, more far-reaching steps to create a whole new form. The Black Lives Matter-led protest movement also continues to make gains in cities around the country. In Louisville, Kentucky, authorities announced they are reopening an investigation into the March 13 police killing of Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old EMT who was killed on March 13 when police conducted a no-knock raid on her apartment and shot her eight times while she was lying in her bed. It later turned out the police had the wrong address. In Los Angeles, Mayor Eric Garcetti has promised to cut the LAPD's annual budget by $150 million and use the funds for other crime reduction initiatives that don't involve the police. In Portland, Oregon, the city's school board has decided to cut ties with the Portland Police Department and no longer have police officers stationed in its schools. In Seattle, the city's Central Labor Council has put the Seattle Police Union on notice that it must commit to a series of anti-racist initiatives or face expulsion from the Labor Council as of June 17th. We will talk more about the role of police unions in blocking police reform and whether their power may finally be waning later in the show. Public monuments honoring racists are also toppling. In Virginia, Governor Ralph Northam has announced that a massive statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee will be removed from its prominent place on the grounds of the state capitol. He has also been joined by Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney, who says he will remove statues along the city's Monument Avenue that honor Confederate leaders, including General Lee, General Thomas Stonewall Jackson, and Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Richmond is no longer the capital of the Confederacy, Mayor Stoney noted. In Philadelphia, Mayor Jim Kinney has removed the statue of Frank Rizzo following its defacing by protesters. Rizzo, a former police chief and mayor of Philadelphia, was notorious for his racism and his brutality toward the city's black population during the 1970s and 80s. Protests against racial discrimination have also spread across Europe in the wake of George Floyd's killing. In Bristol, England yesterday, protesters took matters into their own hands with the statue of Edward Colston, a 17th century slave trader who is estimated to have shipped 80,000 Africans to British colonies in the Americas. The statue, which had stood near City Hall since 1895, was defaced, torn down, gleefully stomped on, pushed through the streets, and shoved off a pier into the harbor. Listen closely and you can hear the splash of the statue hitting the water. We will be back with more after the break. We the people are the ones who going to have to fight. We used to say, which side are you on? Which side are you on? The truth is, we're in so much debt 
that the only way out is revolution or war. So now the question is, which side are you on? On, 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 on. Which side are you on, boy? Which side are you on, no matter Which side are you on, boy? Which side That was Which Side Are You On by Rebel Diaz. You're listening to the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website, now in its 20th year of publishing. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. You can find the Indies coverage of the Black Lives Matter protests and all their ramifications at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-N-T dot O-R-G. Also, I'm excited to announce our print edition will return at the end of this week to a street corner near you. We went all digital at the height of the pandemic, but now that the people are back in the streets, we soon will be as well. Also, I want to remind everyone listening that WBEI is currently in the middle of a very important spring fund drive. I'll share information about how you can help keep this radio station on the air a little later in the show. So please have pen and paper ready to go. And now we turn to our first segment. As the protest movement sparked by the brutal police killing of George Floyd continues to grow, the role of police unions in upholding a brutal racist system of policing in this city and this country is gaining greater scrutiny. In Seattle, that city's central labor council is threatening to expel the local police union from its ranks. Here in New York, the state legislature is now weighing the future of 50A, a 1976 law that bars the release of a police officer's disciplinary record without his or her consent. But thanks to our next guest, Aaron Fernando, there are all there are all of a sudden a lot fewer elected officials who want to be associated with the police unions and their campaign contributions. Aaron, welcome to the WBAI Evening News. Thank you for having me. You bet. So, Aaron, you're a college student at CUNY's John Jay College here in New York City, and I understand you were working on a research project about uh, Democratic office holders in New York who receive campaign contributions from police unions, while in many cases also espousing support for Black Lives Matter. Uh, can can you tell us more about what you found and what happened when you released the spreadsheet that contained your findings? Yeah, so I was uh, looking at fundraising uh, um, statistics for different um, Democrats in New York City. Um, and I noticed that a lot of these so-called progressive Democrats who claim to be supporting um, criminal justice reforms, uh, they were taking a lot of money from these very conservative right-wing unions, you know, the police unions, the correction officer unions, and the court officer unions. Um, so I started compiling these numbers. I started compiling all the different contributions from these different unions um, and who they gave money to in this cycle. Um, I wasn't, sure, wasn't really sure what to do with the information um, until George Floyd happened. I noticed that there was a sudden surge of interest in um, holding police accountable, holding elected officials accountable. Um, and I thought this was this spreadsheet was kind of like the intersection of those two issues. Um, so I released the spreadsheet on Twitter, and I, I kind of gained a lot of traction pretty quickly. Um, a lot of legislators noticed it. Um, a lot of people noticed it. A lot of people started calling their legislators and their uh, officials and telling them they didn't want them to be taking these law enforcement contributions. Um, and to date, we have had 17 legislators um, donate $59,000 worth of these uh, law enforcement contributions. Uh, they donated them to Black Lives Matter and other anti-racist causes. 
Um, and as long as the pressure keeps on building, I'm sure we'll see some more donations in the future. Right. Now, I think you you found a, a total of 57 uh, Democrats uh, who had been receiving money. Uh, first of all, can you uh, say how far back in time uh, these totals go? But also, can you tell us who some of the uh, uh, more egregious offenders were or the, uh, the ones who were raking in the most uh, money before your revelations came out? Yeah, so my money, uh, my spreadsheet only looked at money from this cycle, um, but if I went back to previous cycles, it would be a lot more. Um, but even this cycle, you have some really egregious people, like you mentioned. For instance, um, it's usually a lot of conservative Democrats. You know, you have like Diane Savino, who's a senator for Staten Island, who was part of the IDC. She's taken $63,000 from law enforcement this cycle alone, which is a staggering number. Um, then you have other people in more conservative districts, like uh, Andrew Gnardis, who's a senator from Brooklyn, uh, Peter Abate, who's, a senator, who's an assemblyman in Brooklyn. Um, then you have the speaker, Carl Heasty, um, who is an assemblyman in the Bronx. He's taken $26,700 this cycle, which is, I think, is a staggering amount for the speaker of the assembly um, to be taking. Um, and you have all these people who they claim to be supporting these policies and they claim to be Democrats, and yet they're taking money from unions that endorse Republicans, that support conservative policies. Um, I just don't think it's right. Right. And can you uh, describe uh, some of the some of the people who who some of the people are that have returned their donations? Uh, who are some prominent people in that group who uh, had second thoughts and uh, and uh, forked the money over? Yeah, I think before uh, before uh, a couple days ago, you had some assembly people like um, you had Arafel Simotas, you had Catalina Cruz, you had uh, Carmen de la Rosa, Natalia Fernandez. These are all members of the assembly. Um, some of them are pretty progressive. Uh, and then you had the big one was Mike Gianaris, who had taken about $17,000 from law enforcement this cycle. Um, he has like kind of a national profile because he stopped Amazon from coming to Queens. Um, and when he announced that he would be um, donating his money, that kind of set up a whole new chain reaction because he's one of the main members of the, the state senate leadership. Um, so to have him donate the money was a big deal. I think it really pushed the cause forward. Um, and since then, we've seen a lot more Democrats. Um, some of them are more progressive Democrats who didn't know they had these contributions. Um, and some of them are Democrats who are just concerned about their reelection. Uh, it's a mixture of the two. Um, it's really interesting to see which Democrats are uh, donating their law enforcement contributions and which ones just don't care. Mm. And 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 just to be clear for our, our listeners, uh, it seems like the bulk of those contributions are targeted at state legislators in the Assembly and the State Senate because a, a lot of the most important laws that affect New York City are determined in Albany by our state government, including the fate of uh, 50A, the controversial law that uh, shields uh, police records from police disciplinary records from being released. Uh, um, can you also describe the the impact uh, uh, your your action has had uh, nationally? I, I understand uh, there's other people now uh, doing similar research and uh, publishing of, of this kind of information around the country. Yeah, I mean, I originally intended only for people in New York City to really care about this. Uh, I didn't really think about the national implications. But I've had people from all over the country uh, message me and ask me how they can do this for their own states and their own city. Um, and we, I'm currently I'm keeping track of all the different spreadsheets I'm getting from across the country. Um, I think it's about like 30 or 40 right now of people who have compiled their own numbers on which Democrats in their cities or states are t- 
taking these law enforcement contributions and they've been pushing them as well. And we've seen some real change already. Um, and one of the most prominent ones that I saw was the uh, Senate, sorry, the, the, the Senate, the president of the Colorado State Senate uh, returned his police contributions once he was called out on it. Um, and a lot of the people who are compiling these uh, these numbers are young people like myself. I think it just goes to show that my generation is not really going to tolerate, uh, you know, kowtowing to law enforcement's uh, every uh, whim. I think we're really going to challenge them, and we're going to hold them accountable, and we're not going to be, uh, not going to be like how people have done it uh, for the past decade or so. Right on, Aaron Fernando. It, it seems like the uh, the days when a, a politician could both take police union money and say they support Black Lives Matter is uh, coming uh, coming to a close. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, this evening on WBAI uh, Evening News and and for all the good work you're doing. Of course. Take care. Okay. Thank you. All right. We'll be back uh, with more about uh, police unions and uh, local local politics uh, after this short break. That was A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. You are listening to the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website, now in its 20th year of publishing. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. Before we jump into our second segment, I encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI and keep this one-of-a-kind community radio station on the air and beaming its 50,000-watt signal across the greater New York area and beyond. Station is currently in the middle of a very important spring fund drive. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to WBAI.org and making your donation there. Again, that's 516-620-3602 or you can go to WBAI.org. Your support helps keep shows like this one on the air. And now we turn to our second segment. With the role of police unions coming under greater scrutiny after the police killing of George Floyd, uh, 
Politicians are becoming more wary of being associated with those police unions, including office holders who have long taken their money. Uh, perhaps nowhere has an incumbent flipped more swiftly than in Assembly 36 in Astoria in Queens, where there's a hotly contested primary going on right now between the incumbent, Aravella Samotis, and her challenger, uh, Democratic Socialist Zoran Mamdani. Uh, Zoran uh, joins us tonight on the show. Uh, Zoran, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thank you so much for having me, John. You bet. So can you describe uh, what happened when uh, the information came out about uh, Aravella Samotis? I believe she had received $5,350 in this cycle uh, from police unions and, and, and how you handle that and, and, and how she flipped so quickly? Absolutely. So we had, you know, we had noticed it was prior to this, this outbreak of, of the, the protests across New York City, across the country. Um, in the first filing period, Assemblymember Simotis had taken money from corrections unions that were in favor, that were against the closing of Rikers Island. And we had noticed that at the time and had, had been speaking about it. But then in, in this moment on May 29th, we had sent out a tweet which basically made clear to people, you know, why is it so difficult to cut police budgets and cash bail, change the laws to hold crooked cops accountable? And we said that the reason is the enormous political power of the police and that a bare minimum to breaking that power, a bare minimum first step is to refuse their money. And we outlined how Assemblymember Samotas had received thousands of dollars um, from these unions. And then uh, on the next day, that was the 29th, and then on the next day, we made it very clear that these same unions who have contributed over $10,000 to her oppose all of the major reforms that are being proposed right now, specifically starting with 50A, which is frankly not even that major of a reform, but is the one that's most on people's minds. And then within about seven minutes, she tweeted that she would return $5,350 from police-affiliated groups uh, to the New York City Bail Fund. I see. And what, is, uh, what, what do you attribute that to? I attribute that to a primary. I think that, frankly, you know, the NYPD has been brutalizing black and brown New Yorkers across the city for years, um, for far longer than my opponent has been in office, which is for 10 years. And to give back the money just from this reelection cycle speaks to a changing of calculus by my opponent in terms of deeming this money as tainted. But frankly, if you think this money is tainted in this moment, which it is, then all money you receive from these same unions are tainted because they've all been extracted from the beating of black and brown bodies across the city and across the state. Mm. And, and uh, can you describe what your uh, platform is for, for uh, changing uh, how the police and their criminal justice system function here in New York? Absolutely. So, um, you know, our platform is first and foremost to reduce the power and the presence of the police. So what that means in terms of the NYPD's budget, that's primarily uh, decided upon by the New York City Council. But we've made it very clear that we as a campaign and as a movement here in Astoria are firmly in favor of defunding the police by at least $1 billion this year. In terms of what we can do with state legislation, we're in favor of repealing 50A, um, we are also in favor of taking moves that would reduce police presence and interaction with people's lives. So what that means is to decriminalize sex work, to uh, end cash bail, to ban solitary confinement, to pass elder parole, um, and, and thinking about what are the more kind of imaginative ways that we can 
resolve this crisis of policing that we've been facing for years, for decades, frankly, and change the way in which we understand how to create safety and how to sustain it. So it seems fair to say that your solution is less about trying to make the police nicer, but just to shrink their presence in people's lives. Absolutely. I would say that, you know, a lot of times when any kind of institution is faced with serious critique, the answer is to try and make it into reform. You know, when uh, Black Lives Matter initially began, we saw so many calls for people saying we need we need body cameras, we need implicit bias training. But you look at Minneapolis and the Minneapolis Police Department, they were held up as a success story in implementing those kinds of reforms. And where did it get us? It still took George Floyd's life. They still murdered this man for forging a check. And it just shows that we need to fight for a solution that does not increase funding to the police under the auspices of reform. We need to fight for a solution that radically reshapes how we provide and sustain safety. And it does not require police officers to be armed and responding to everything ranging from a homeless person in the subway to someone having a mental breakdown in their home. Right. And can uh, for people who aren't familiar with you, uh, can you Say a little bit about yourself, your first-time candidate for office out in Western Queens. Yes, absolutely. So my name is Zohran Kwame Mamdani. I'm a candidate here in Astoria, Dittmar Steinway, and Astoria Heights. And I am a foreclosure prevention housing counselor. I work with immigrant families across Queens uh, facing eviction from their long-term family homes. And I'm also a tenant here in the neighborhood. And this campaign is really built around... Uh, the idea and the reality of home, ensuring that every New Yorker has a place to live, which we can do by passing a homes guarantee, which would make housing into a right as opposed to something you can access through the market. And, you know, we have built this campaign around housing, around justice and around energy. And frankly, with justice, you know, I was someone who spent many months working on Tiffany Caban's campaign, who has endorsed our campaign. And one of the main pillars of, of the work that we're doing is to take her vision for Queens, take it from Astoria all the way to Albany. Mm. And uh, uh, and you're a part of a, a larger slate of democratic socialists uh, running this cycle. And I mean, all of you come from non-traditional backgrounds for, for a candidate. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's such a beautiful thing. You know, running can can very often be a, a very lonely task, and it's so lovely to be a part of a slate. You know, Jabari Brisport running for state senate, Marcella Matanis running for state assembly, Farah Sufran Forrest for state assembly. Those are the ones of us who are running for the first time for local offices. We also have Samelis Lopez in the Bronx running for Congress. I think that, you know. Too often we have seen candidates and politicians not representative of the breadth of experiences across the city and across the state. And it's high time that we have a slate of candidates such as ourselves who not only look like this city, but who've also worked on and experienced the ways in which this city is a beautiful place to live, but also one that can break you down. And we are trying to ensure that it does not do that any longer. All right. Zora and Mamdani, thank Thank you for joining us tonight on WBAI Evening News, and we wish you the best with the remainder of your campaign. Thank you so much. Yeah, we have we have just a little over two weeks, June 23rd, and I hope to return to the show after having won our primary. All right. We, we would look forward to that. Oh, and so that's, uh, that's going to wrap up our show tonight. Again, you can follow all of the Indies' uh, uh, coverage of the Black Lives Matter protests at independent.org. I'd uh, like to thank uh, uh, Renee Feltz and Amba Gergarian both for uh, helping with tonight's show. 
And uh, we'll be back same time next week. And again, if you want to give to WBAI, the number is 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602 or WBAI.org. Good night. On Tuesday, June 9th, Pacifica will feature live coverage of George Floyd's homegoing service in Houston, Texas. Mr. Floyd once lived in the historic African-American neighborhood, Third Ward, and played football at Jack Yates High School minutes away from the local Pacifica studio, KPFT. Walk hand in hand with Mr. Floyd's family and millions around the world as the call for police accountability resonates among protesters. Listen to veteran journalist and host Verna Avery-Brown in Washington, D.C., and award-winning journalist and producer Akua Holt in Houston, Texas. In conversation with Mr. Floyd's close friends, as well as national and international guests. On Tuesday, June 9th, 10 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Central, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune into your local Pacifica radio station or listen online at pacifica.org. All right, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned for Counterspin coming up. Before that was the WBAI Evening News. I know, I just said that in reverse.